0: We'll get to the creative check-in in in just a moment, but first I have a little announcement. The creative of the week segment, which is the time when I give a creative listener a shout out, is now moving to the end of the episode because I like to save the best for last. So stay tuned for that at the very end of the show. It's after the outro and there's an amazing one this week, all about female empowerment and really cute designs. And now to the creative check-in. Today's is don't get wrapped up in feeling sorry for yourself. And this thought came about this week at my job when I was producing an interview with an amazing singer-songwriter called LP. And she was talking about the fact that before she had her hit song, Lost on You, in her late 30s, she had been with seven different record labels, many of them she was dropped from, and she said that a key to not giving up and to getting where she is now was not feeling sorry for herself when music broke her heart and that was a big mirror for me <laughs> i i really realized in that moment that this has been a big issue of mine in los angeles and in my creative journey and i think after every creative heartbreak i've had there's been a prolonged period of why me i'm a good person i don't deserve this i work hard i have talent why did god put this in my heart if i can't have it and That's all wrong. First of all, when you're putting out those victim mentality thoughts, you're drawing more of that to you. The other thing is, it takes you away from the very thing you love. When you're in a state of self-pity, the last thing you want to do is create. All you want to do is go down your spiral of doom into crying and pounding the ground and asking why. You know, it doesn't get you anywhere. Like I said, you can get so wrapped up in being a victim that you forget about the pure love of your goal. So I'm really going to start working on this because even when I am a very positive person, but I do live in extremes. So it's like in the same day, and actually (laughs) it happened that literal day. I think I woke up that morning and I was like, I'm amazing. I can achieve anything. I'm doing so many great things. I'm so proud of my work. And by midday, it spiraled to I've never done anything in my life. How dare I have the nerve to think that I can achieve my dreams? Wow, you're such a screw up. You haven't done anything you've set out to do. So it's like, you know, staying in the positive place that I know is actually beneficial and more true than the negative self-pity place. And it was such a good mirror for me because even though I've come a long way from that and I don't do it nearly as much as I did in my younger years of creativity, it's still a crutch for me so i'm going to start focusing on gratitude more cuz i think that's a really good place to be to keep you out of this wallowing sorry for yourself mentality i'm going to focus on the love of what i do and focus on the goal and and you know the journey as we've talked about because those are really the only things you control and staying in the positive mindset staying in the love that's what helps you get closer So instead of wallowing in that victimhood after a creative heartbreak, let yourself cry for a while, pick yourself up off the ground, evaluate, learn the lessons that need to be learned, then get back to the love. You got to be grateful that you have a passion that you feel this deeply about. Take the lesson, leave the negativity, go toward the love. Okay, now to the guest. Kurt Yeager is an actor, writer, producer, inclusion advocate, and former professional X-game athlete, best known for his work on Sons of Anarchy, NCIS New Orleans, and Los Angeles, The Village, and Shameless. Kurt's creative journey started up in the Bay Area, where he made his mark as a professional BMX rider. Ever the chameleon, he then decided to challenge himself by rerouting and going out for his master's in hydrogeology at San Francisco State. It was during this time that his life changed forever. One night, he was riding his motorcycle home when he took a corner, hit a guardrail, a pole, and fell off a 40-foot embankment. He woke up with many injuries, including a seriously injured leg, which ended up having to be amputated below the knee. However, this incredible trauma also turned into the inciting incident of his greatest creativity. Not only did Kurt learn to walk, ride a bike, and a motorcycle again, and he even competed in BMX again. He also created a whole new career for himself as a professional actor. For
1: me, present work is harder than the long, dreamy goals. Because like, it's hard to sit down and commit however many hours it is to that one task right now when you know there's 400 other things that are also going to get you to that goal that all have to get done. But if you don't focus on the thing right in front of you, nothing can get done.
0: I wanted to have Kurt on the show because he has a moving story of persistence, reinvention, the power of patience, and even impatience, and the incredible success an unshakable belief in yourself can produce. From our conversation, you'll learn how to cultivate patience, make fair your bitch, quell anxiety, why it's so important to get people with disabilities both in front of and behind the camera, why style is key to success, and how to stay mentally and emotionally healthy when working long hours. Now here he is, Kurt Yeager. You have an incredible story and a story that's been so deeply affected by creativity and perseverance and pushing through fear. And so I wondered if we could start basically at the inciting incident of a lot of your creativity, which was your accident. And you were in a motorcycle accident Mm -hmm. and you lost part of your leg in that accident. And you really, I mean, you had to push through so many different obstacles, but you're on the other side today and just have this amazing career and have been such an inspiration to so many people. and But I was wondering if you could walk me through your accident and how you started to recover from it.
1: Yeah, I, I had a really bad motorcycle accident where I ripped off my left leg, broke my pelvis in half, tore my bladder in half, broke seven vertebrae, collapsed my lungs, all my right ribs, concussion, ACL, MCL. I spent three months in the hospital, 27 surgeries while I was there. And you know it took time to figure out how to push through that, but it was a stage of things that led to that. So I had... I grew up in a rough neighborhood, so I learned how to push through. You know, having mm-hmm. to deal with ruffians, um, and got into a lot of fistfights with a lot of people. Then. I got out and was surrounded by people of uh, higher intellectual capacity. So I had to fight my way through that. What books do they read? You know, are they going out partying on Friday night? Or are they sitting home reading Thucydides or Herodotus? You know, mm. what I mean? are they reading Euclid? My what favorite, they, right? Currently. Yeah, oh, so good Friday <laughs> nights. But what are they reading? So it made me go, okay, what Brown, Harvard, Yale? Mm-hmm. What are those people having to read as part of their curriculum? I'm going to read all of their curriculum because so
0: you're think- studying archaeology at that point, right? Um,
1: No. At that time, I was actually still a professional athlete. Okay. I rode BMX and the X Games. And so I was done, you know, double flips over 40-foot jumps, stuff like that. No and big deal. Yeah, no big deal. <laughs> and so while I was doing that, I was meeting a bunch of people that – I wasn't connecting with, you know, like intellectually, Mm. like I wasn't there. I wasn't, they were older than me, but I still felt, wait a minute, what am I missing? How do you, how do you read well? Like what's, I didn't have a good lexicon. Like I didn't Mm. understand words as bad, as good as I should have. And I was like, okay, I need to do this. So I started working on all of that. That's what led me to get my master's in hydrogeology. Like I was like, oh, okay, I could I can tap into this. This is, these are my people too, Mm -hmm. but I had street smarts. So I kind of developed something they didn't. Then the accident happened while I was actually working on my master's in hydrogeology. And after that, I got into, you know, acting full time. The aspect of it that was actually my breakthrough in terms of creativity was now emotional growth. So I had physical growth in the beginning, intellectual growth in the middle, and towards the latter part so far, emotional growth. Like, now I need to be open. Like, I can be a a guy's guy and cry. It's okay. I can be a guy's guy and put out my writing and have people ridicule it and not offend my ego enough to where I'm not going to write again. You know, it just got to that stage where now you know i've i've learned and i'm still learning the emotional intelligence the emotional maturity i'm still pretty stupid <laughs>
0: i would disagree <laughs> uh,
1: in in that capacity i'm still figuring it out like and that's but I that's mean,
0: lifelong for everyone you know and i think it's admirable for a guy that came from a culture that didn't support that to go on this journey. And you've talked a lot about how acting has opened you up to vulnerability because you could be vulnerable as a character when you didn't feel like you could be like that in real life. And so I'm wondering where you are now with your journey toward vulnerability and what's your advice for other people who are also feeling a little bit shy to open up their heart cavity?
1: Yeah. I mean, one thing that my father told me that never stuck And I mean, stuck, but never really resonated until later, was it's better to be hated for who you are than loved for who you aren't. Mm -hmm. So I think it's really self-discovery and then telling everybody about it. The more you tell everybody who you are, the more you realize how much of a bullshitter you are. (laughs) And then you'll realize, wait, no, that was bullshit. No, I kind of embellished that. And then you start going like, well, everyone's just accepting me. Let me not embellish this time. And then you don't this time. And they still accept you. And you realize it's you're just fine the way you are. But that only comes through truth and openness. Like that's basically what it boils down to. If you're not telling people, like, you know, I'm dating right now. Mm-hmm. So if I'm not going out and saying, this is what I want. This is who I am. It's okay that they don't like me and it was only one first date. Right. It's okay. There's nothing wrong with you. Mm-hmm. It's just not what I want right now. And that only comes from forthcomingness in terms of actually telling people what you think how can you know who they are or who you are if you're only meeting each other's representative now that relies Ooh, i
0: like that tell me yeah. where the representative comes from
1: well you know like yeah. if we if we meet and i'm like hi nice to meet you i'm kurt jaeger pleasure and you're like hi i'm lauren i'm hanging out you know and i'm like great and we and we meet each other and we go about each other's business yeah. everything was yes and positive and everything else but it wasn't authentic mm-hmm. it wasn't real like I didn't go, you know, how are you doing today? I'm shit. I'm having a shit day because my friend's having a hard time and his marriage is struggling. And I just was thinking about it. And he was like, most people were like, oh, I don't know what to say. Because no one talks. No right. one's authentic. So. We're all pretty good. How are you? Right. <laughs> I'm great. How are you? I'm great. fans And so we all have this veneer, you know, that mm-hmm. kind of hides that inner f- kid. Pain. Yeah. like, <laughs> And instead of just being like, look, I just I'm having a shit day. Well, guess what? I just got it out. I had someone listen to me. They now I felt listened to. So now I want to listen and help them. And when you start putting yourself in that position and everyone starts doing it, all of a sudden everyone's willing to tell everyone the truth and help each other. Now that can relate to life stuff, emotional stuff, struggles, creativity. You put your music out there, you put your writing out there, you put your art, you put, you know, your engineering plans. It may not be art per se, but that's still creative. Yeah. So you put you know a new methodology for how you're going to be a CPA. You got to put it out there just as risky as anybody else who sings. So it's like really kind of opening up yourself to being like, it's okay to be wrong and make mistakes. And all of a sudden you're in a place where your work is being evaluated correctly, not through the lens of your fear or ego trying to be too big. Mm-hmm. You know, and then all of a sudden you can evaluate its its true worth and grow.
0: So you've had to get through a lot of fear in your life. Everybody does, I think, in order to be an authentic person and live the life that we are capable of. What's your advice for people who are stunted by fear and trying to push through it?
1: I think that fear is like a giant dragon behind your back. You can't see it. You don't want to look at it. It's this thing you're not dealing with. And the second you say, how how much can we curse? Can we curse all the way? Oh, as much as you want. The second you go, fuck it. You turn around to face that demon. The dragon, the little thing there is kind of this wimpy little thing that isn't as big as you thought it was. You know? And Mm -hmm. like... I mean, I still have fear, so, you know. yeah, you're alive. (laughs) Like, if I have three drinks in me, I can definitely sing karaoke. But if I was actually going to put something on tape that I wrote, I don't know yet. So So knowing that about me means that I have to do it. So you have to do the things you're afraid of. Like, if you're afraid of snakes, okay, then play with snakes. Wait, wait. You won't be you, you won't be afraid of them anymore. Doesn't mean you're gonna love them. But
0: how do you get yourself to the place where you're willing to go for it? Because it's one thing to say, okay, go play with a snake, but like do yeah. you have to like mental jujitsu yourself into getting in the snake pin? Yes. Is there a snake pin? I don't know. Yeah, is there's a totally
1: thing? a snake <laughs> pin. There's like, you know, there's a place over in Burbank, it's called yeah. the snake pin. Can't you, know, wait. you can drink and, and bam, play with snakes. Play snakes. No, I was kidding. Uh, <laughs> but what it is is I think it's a practiced art. The more you do it, the more you realize it's the only way to fight fear. It's the only way to overcome yourself. It's the only way to not be subjugated to, you know, the prison of fear, Mm -hmm. right? So, but that only comes from practice. I mean, the first time you do anything, it's horrifying, Whether physically, mentally, emotionally, first time a baby tries to walk, it doesn't really do it too well. Not the 10th time, not the 30th time, but eventually it gets the hang of it. So you can only know that facing fear is the only way to go about it by starting to face fear. So you might be the person that jumps in feet first, Well, then go face a big fear and do it. And you see people like that. Then there's other ones who are facing little fears a little bit at a time. And then there's other people that are facing medium fears. But not facing it, it literally begets more fear.
0: Right. So it's kind of like know yourself, almost train yourself, stair-step yourself up to facing the thing that you're ultimately most afraid of, and then just go for it. Yeah. Okay. That's a good methodology. You talk about... Basically what I like to call the art of being bad at something. You talked about that just now with the baby, you know, like babies suck at walking. Mm -hmm. Sorry, babies, but you do. Yeah, Screw you, babies. (laughs) And then they learn how to do it eventually. But as we get older, we forget that there is that trajectory of sucking for a while Mm -hmm. until you're highly skilled at it like you are with the other things in your life. Yeah. So to take it back to what you've overcome, I mean, you had to literally reteach yourself everything pretty much, but especially how to walk, how to get on a bike again. Mm-hmm. How did you, first of all, just in general, get through that? But second of all, I struggle with patience a lot. So I'm fascinated by people who have it mm-hmm. and I want to learn from you. How did you keep the patience and and focus on the faith in that moment of absolute hardship?
1: Yeah, patience is a very dynamic thing to ask for if you're Mm -hmm. like i need more patience then all of a sudden you're gonna get a lot of things to be patient about you know Uh what i mean like so you Uh really yeah you really gotta be careful what you ask for okay (laughs) i i think to to the first question how how you get through something like that and how you relearn i think that is part of the learned practice i don't think i could have gotten through it unless i had practiced that beforehand you know how do i all of a sudden, missing a limb, know how to adjust my prosthetic leg to make it work for me. Well, I had to have some, you know, mechanical understanding of bicycles and motorcycles and things first and how to apply them and understand physics from a physical perspective, you know, doing flips over jumps or tricks and stuff like that made me go, okay, if I lean this way on the prosthetic leg and it hurts on the left side, the pressure's probably coming from the right side. So if I cut this little area out, then maybe it'll... Nope, that didn't work. You know, and it's not that I'm like, oh, it didn't work. It's okay. Let me try again. It's like, no, fuck this fucking leg. Damn it. Let me bash a couple things. Get upset. Be angry. (sighs) Okay, I got that out. You got that out of your system, Kurt? Yeah, okay, get back to it. You know, like, for me, it was easier to get upset and frustrated and then go back to it as opposed to get down on myself and go, I'll never do this and then just quit Mm -hmm. you know I'd rather use anger be angry and then bypass it and then get back to it but patience I don't even really know what that word means (laughs) I I am not a patient person
0: so your impatience actually served you in 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 that instance in that
1: well it does I mean you you know I'm a thrower of things So, like, I definitely, like, if I'm frustrated with something, like, I'll throw a tool. Sometimes the tool goes through a cabinet and you're like, oh, "Oh, shit, I broke the cabinet. Damn it. I just made the problem so much fucking worse. You know what I mean? And that happens. But at the same time, it's like you realize it didn't help anything and you have to just go through your method but evaluate it Mm -hmm. while you're doing it. There, there's impatience and then there's patience. And I think you can be impatient with something that isn't right, isn't working, isn't going the right way, but you have to be patient enough to ask the questions about it and evaluate. And I don't think – maybe it's not even the word patience. Maybe it's just taking the time to look back on what went wrong and mm. being like, let me evaluate where the mistakes truly were, like for former relationships, for instance, the common denominator of all of my previous failed relationships are me the it doesn't matter what they did i'm at some capacity the common denominator so where were my flaws was it in choosing the partner was it in my reaction to my partner's flaws was it my flaws lopped onto my partner's head that i ran from emotionally was it you know you start like really having to evaluate that now if you do that with every single thing you should slowly improve whether you make perfection or not is a different question but i think that it's that patience of taking moments to sit down think about it write it down ask your friends what did i do right what did i do wrong whether it's acting writing producing Um, woodwork relationships, your pursuit into this, yeah, woodwork, yeah, (laughs) you know, turtle care, (laughs) you know what I mean? Like, I mean, whatever there is, you know, you have to go, what went wrong? I mean, if you're in the business and you keep making the same product and it's only selling something, if you don't do any market research, if you don't ask people what it's about, then how can you improve it? Why is it okay for probably 95% of everyone listening to this podcast? They think, you know, I'm going to evaluate my work, I'm going to see where I'm at, I'm going to show people my resume, I'm going to take this product, and they do all of it, you know, the self-evaluation for like an outside perspective of this stuff, but they never turn it around and focus it on their emotional or spiritual well-being. They don't look at it. Think of it as a product. Think of it as like a tangible entity that you're going like, well, when I said this to her in my relationship. I was really upset. She made me upset. Yes. But why did you get upset?
0: Trigger
1: right, but the trigger is like, is it something that I didn't get when I was seven years old from my mom because she wasn't there, and so what I'm trying to do is make up for that in my relationship, and by that I'm forcing her to behave in a manner that she's not going to behave because she grew up where she did get that, so it doesn't even make sense that it's missing in some other human because it's perfectly exemplified in her.
0: Yeah, then wow. And you're like,
1: fuck, how do I do <laughs> right? Like, you're yeah. like, you're like. Or she was just a bitch.
0: (laughs) One of the two. Right, yeah. Yeah, I mean, maybe it's a little of both.
1: It usually is. And it's usually not black and white. Mm -hmm. It's not
0: binary. I know. Oh my gosh, there's so much I want to break down right now from what you just said. One, I love that you're doing this deep inner work because it's so necessary and beautiful. Thank you. Um, I'm also on that journey in therapy and it's like
1: Mm -hmm. the
0: best thing on earth. Two, so here's the, the issue though. I'm totally getting what you're saying, but I panic in that moment where it's like, I have the goal. Oh my God, I'm so excited. I have the goal. And then there's the middle area where you're like, will I ever get to the goal? Will it ever happen? Will it ever happen? And then eventually you get to the goal. But how do you not panic in that middle area? is
1: is Is it panic that showcases itself in procrastination? Does it showcase itself in not doing all the job? That you could do. So maybe you're only going after B-level work because you're like, if I don't put my heart and soul into this because of fear, then maybe when it doesn't quite do as well as it probably won't do, I won't be less hurt later. So you're self-protecting in a fear-based world. Is it that your panic is just anxiety? Mm -hmm. And anxiety isn't something – everyone's like, that's the end result. No, that's the beginning. If you can identify it as anxiety, anxiety literally is the difference between the way it is and the way you want it to be. The greater that distance, the greater the anxiety.
0: Yeah, that's it, I think, for me.
1: So then Mm -hmm. you have to evaluate if your expectations – are too high and they can be like if you're like i'm gonna do this and that's my goal and it's way the fuck down that road you like that's 10 years down the road there's all these little baby steps you have to make in between so let me back my goal up to a closer goal like let me just get 20 episodes of the show written Mm -hmm. let me just write one episode of the show let me just write 10 pages of the show. Let me just write a one page synopsis. Let me just think about what my main character is. Let me think about what my main character's name is. Is it a guy or a girl? Now you're starting at the beginning. Now there's no anxiety.
0: It's so true, though, because I think it's like when we do focus on those epic goals, the goal that you need to really focus on is really what's right in front of you. Because that's all, I mean, I've done like podcasts about this before, but it's all part of it. Mm And I think we can often think that the path is just for me, like whenever someone would say, like, it's about the journey, I'd be like, fuck you. It's not right. about the journey, it's about the destination. Yeah.
1: <laughs> no one likes walking through the desert. You yeah. know what I mean? Like, oh, that was fun. Yeah. yeah. That was, no, it's horrible. No one likes working out. Everyone likes when working out is over.
0: Right. And when you get those yeah. abs, honey buds. Right. <laughs> I always look in the mirror right after work and I'm like, am I thin yet? This is perfect. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, no, that's such a good method. I appreciate that. And it doesn't mean Mm -hmm. forgo
1: the long distance thinking. You have to have a goal. Right. But then you have to. Don't be
0: obsessed with it.
1: Yeah. You have to back it up to like present stuff. Like for me, present work is harder than the long dreamy goals Mm -hmm. because like it's hard to sit down and commit however many hours it is to that one task right now when you know there's 400 other things that are also going to get you to that goal. That all have to get done. But if you don't, like, be present and focus on the thing right in front of you, nothing can get done. So it's really about being hyper-aware that you're going to limit your thinking from large, dreamy goals to tangible, short goals. And don't worry about it. In two hours, you're going to go back to dreaming big goals again. Instead of trying to be just one thing or another. Literally being like the tide. It comes in and it goes out. It comes in and it goes out. You have to ebb and flow along with it. So sometimes you're going to be really, really tight and you're pushing up the hill and other times you're going to relax and go downhill. You know, it's like the difference between, you know, what most people do is they seem to expand themselves so much that they become unable to make a movement of any direction, right? They have no ability to... Strike out, so a rattlesnake for instance can't strike you if it's not coiled up well it has to recoil to to strike you so if you're only going out 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 go 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 and you're never taking the time to evaluate pull it back in let's look at it let's let's flow back out to see okay now I'm back out to see now I'm recoiled okay I'm gonna come back in now and I'm gonna come back in hard and then the same way a rattlesnake can strike out I mean I think that is both intellectual maturity and emotional maturity, knowing that intellectually you can go for a goal and try it. And the emotional maturity is evaluating what happened and taking note of it, doing a spa day, right? Mm-hmm. And then being okay, fuck it, let's do it again. And I think that rhythm is mm-hmm. where I think you start getting real success.
0: Going back to your success a little bit, you went from that accident and the trauma of that to walking again to riding a bike again, to acting and cultivating this incredibly successful acting career. So can you take me through that journey a little bit and how you got there?
1: I mean, that's that's a big question because I yeah, think I'm is. still on that journey, you know? it's just It's just little stages. I don't mm-hmm. even know how to describe it. It's mm-hmm. like there's big goals that I want, you know? Okay, if I say I want to be an actor – Writer, producer with my own show and, you know, multi series regulars and doing this kind of a thing. What does it take to get there? And you slowly back it up to, okay, I have one leg. I'm just getting out of a wheelchair. I have my first prosthetic limb. My leg's on fire. It's killing me. What's going to make my leg hurt less? Quitting or pushing it as far as I can and then taking a break. So you have to build up the strength, build up something to get there. So with my prosthetic leg, I had to build up the residual limbs strength. So I'd push as far as I could and then take a break. Two days off. I wouldn't wear it. And then I'd go back to, let's, now let's go for a mile jog. Let's go for a four-mile jog. Let's do eight miles. Oh, that was too far. Now I know where the limit is. So learning that, becoming an actor full-time, I had to evaluate not only what I was doing in my career but what people who could advance my career needed from an actor not from me just from any actor they needed material they needed tape they needed to see that you have a product that is viable so I went and got every single job I could where basically I was paying to be on set you know like someone's like yeah I got a Craigslist showing and <laughs> you know and we're gonna make this short film and it's you know, two hour drive in San Jose, I was living in San Francisco at the time, it's in San Jose, you know, and it's got to be here at four in the morning. And you're like, Alright, so now you, you, you drive and you pay your own fuel to get there on a work day. So you're not making money at work. And you're paying for your own, you know, gas to get all the way there. And then you pay for your own lunch and your own breakfast and everything else. And then you get on set and you do your thing. And then you drive all the way home. You're like, man, I just spent, you know, $100 to work today. But then you got tape. And so it was a slight investment in your own self. And then you're like, okay, now an agent wants to see me because of my tape. So then you're like, all right, now what makes me more valuable? Well, I'll give everyone a little secret. In acting, Hollywood, it's about popularity and like other people's evaluation of you that gives you value. Not you saying I'm a good actor. So I ended up actually you know, creating opportunities for myself in the media by becoming media and telling people that this person, you know, let's say my name was Doug Johnson at Variety. Uh Well, there's no Doug Johnson at Variety. But if I write an email from Doug Johnson at Variety to someone else at Variety, they're going to (laughs) listen.
0: That's amazing. Yeah. So at what point in your career did you start doing that? The very beginning. Really? Okay, so So did did you do that with like a Gmail email? How did you approach it?
1: I'm not going to give you all that detail. I
0: I think that we need this though because people, this is like a good insider tip for whatever industry they want to get into. If they don't have the footing, how they can make themselves seem more legit. Yeah. Okay. I mean,
1: it's basically thinking about what a colleague would say to you in an email that would pique your interest. So you have to become your best advocate without being beggy. If, Your boss was to say what's good about you to someone else where you're looking for work. Then that's going to appear different than you saying you're good at it. Because it's Mm -hmm. about style. So it's about making people look at your stuff. It's not about trying to prove to them that you're good. They're going to evaluate that answer for themselves. But it's about making people just look. So for instance, I got taught this at a young age when I was looking for a BMX sponsor. I was going up to other athletes. How do I get to your brands? How do I get to your brands? And they're like, yeah, I'm not going to help you out because you're my competition. I didn't realize that. Then going to the brands and saying, hey, I want want you to, you know, I could do a flip over a jump and I'm really good and you should sponsor me. And they're like, that's great, kid. There's Mm -hmm. a lot of kids who can do that. And then someone said, look, it's about style. And I said, what do you mean? And they told me to say this thing that I'm about to tell you. This is what I was told. So I saw a branding guy over there, and I walked over to him and said, Hey, how you doing, Mike? Pleasure to meet you. My name is Kurt Yeager. I write BMX. Oh, nice to meet you. Are you going to be at the contest tomorrow? Yeah. Here's my card. I want you to watch me. I'm going to win. Have a good day. And walk away. Guess what? Next day I went to the contest, and I got fourth. Didn't matter. What did he do? He watched me. So he liked the style. I got him to watch me. He liked my style and then said, yeah, let's sponsor this kid. Didn't matter that I didn't win. I got him to look. And that was the first stage of making someone vested. So in terms of like, I guess, you know, going back to like getting your work noticed and things like that, I think it's about style. It's about how you frame it. You're not begging people to approve you. Mm -hmm. You should be begging people to have a look. Their approval is on them. You can't change that.
0: How are you ballsy enough, though, to say, like, did you honestly believe you were going to win or did it not matter to you? You just wanted to tell them you were good and to get there. Yeah, it didn't matter. Okay.
1: It totally doesn't matter. Okay, I'll give you a for instance. I was on Mm -hmm. Sons of Anarchy. I met Kurt Sutter. I wanted to get on that show really, really bad. And I reached out to the producers, no answer. I reached out to casting, no answer. I reached out to everybody I knew, no answer. There was Kurt Sutter at a party. And I'm looking at him, and he's over there, and I'm over here, and I'm like, oh my gosh, that's Kurt Sutter. (laughs) Okay, Kurt Sutter's a hard ass, but he's not an idiot. And he's not mean, he's just no nonsense. And I love that about people. So... I went, all right, <clears throat> here's your moment. I walked up to him. I go, hey, Kurt. He's like, yeah, nice to meet you. I'm like, my name's Kurt Yeager. Just want to say you really captured the Northern California motorcycle clubs really, really well. Like, I, I'm from there, and I was, you've done a really good job. You know, even down to the guys wearing sneakers and not, you know, motorcycle boots, because it's what NorCal does. He's like, oh, thanks, man. I'm like, absolutely. You're just missing one thing. And he looks at me and goes, yeah? And I go, well, look, every single club has a guy I go down and rip his leg off. Check this out. I pull up my pant leg and show him my prosthetic leg. And he just gets wide-eyed like, holy shit. And then I go, here's my card. I'm not going to tell you how good of an actor I am, but I can ride motorcycles better than all your actors. Have a good day. (laughs) And I wandered off. And I didn't say any more to him. I didn't beg. I didn't say, look at my work. I didn't say, please, I'm a good actor. You know, I could do this for you. Like It was literally a statement of fact. And it should be a fact that you're presenting. Because you're stating an opinion, it's irrelevant. But if I state it, I'm better than all of your actors on motorcycles. One, that could be considered an opinion. Except I am. I've been riding since I was three years old. So I already know I am. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. And and even if you're really, really good, it doesn't matter. I've already already won that argument. So then he's going to go and do what? Because I was cocky. He's going to go look at my reel, which is really what I want him to do.
0: Well, you also said something about his show that would have made him go, "Hmm." Exactly. Because you stated something that was true currently about his show. You stated something the show lacked. Then you told him about yourself and that you were the missing piece.
1: Yeah, and I allowed him that. In, that in totality is mm-hmm. a call to action.
0: Yeah. Wow! Yeah. Great and salesman. That,
1: <laughs> but that it was. But it's also like a good salesman believing that you're right. Mm-hmm. Now, the only way you can truly believe you're right is if you've done a lot of self-evaluation to see if that would be a good character on the show in this particular case so if i think that diversity is going to be good for your show then i'll tell you in in the strongest manner possible but if i don't then i won't like a guy missing a leg right now on like a popular cop show would be brilliant right but i'm not going to pitch myself as a guy missing a leg on modern family It doesn't fit the comedy, the genre. Like I could be a neighbor, a sub-character, but I'm never going to be a lead on it because the leads are the leads. So why pitch into the wind? Because of what I want versus the way it is. So I think that's a big thing is understanding how to do both at the same time. Mm -hmm. You know, be pragmatic enough to understand the way it is, but be hopeful enough to go after the way it could be.
0: You talk a lot about how actors with disabilities should be playing characters with disabilities and able-bodied people should not be Mm -hmm. taking those roles until people with disabilities are considered for those same roles. Right. So can you kind of go into that and where you feel like we're at with it right now in the industry and what we can do to help change it?
1: Yeah, it's kind of difficult because, you know, like everyone wants to say it's just art, but – It's not. It's not because you wouldn't do blackface. Mm -hmm. So, okay, so people with disabilities are considered not – Authentic enough to be considered... You know what I mean? Like, you wouldn't do blackface, meaning you wouldn't have a white guy play a black guy or vice versa, mm-hmm. you know? So why is disability still in that, you know, good actor? Oh, you won an Emmy or an Oscar because you played a guy convincingly who was disabled, you know? Is it is it because the people inherently think that disabled people can't, can't do the job can't do the acting can't do things in real life need a helping hand need this that and the other sometimes yeah people need help as a disabled person and sometimes able-bodied people need help from someone who's a problem solver who happens to be disabled because all disabled people are problem solvers by nature because they're always dealing with ableists but what is
0: what does that mean what is an ableist
1: it's just someone who takes their abilities for granted so think of it this way I give you the perfect example of me being an ableist before my accident. The person I was with would always ask me to bring up the laundry, big, heavy load of laundry. And I was like, Oh, come on, just bring it up. You can do it. It's laundry. Well, you know, I was five eleven, two hundred and ten 210 pounds, no fat, you know, like strong. I didn't understand that she was 130 pounds and that was heavy wasn't until after I had lost my leg and lost 60 pounds in the hospital when I went to carry that same stupid piece of laundry <laughs> up the stairs that I was like, this is heavy. I was top 1% of physical capabilities as a pro athlete. So everything came easy to me. I didn't realize that things were hard for other people. And it wasn't until the accident that I realized it. So you don't know, and it's okay that people don't know. But being ableist is just being like, well, yeah, just... just
0: just do it. Just do it's it. Fine.
1: But it's also assuming that anyone else can't. You know, like, and it's a, it's fear-based. It's like if you see someone in a wheelchair at a grocery store, you're like, oh, that's cool. They're out. You're like, what else are they going to do? They're, at the, they're, they're buying bananas. Like, they have to buy bananas. They have to buy food. Of course they do. So it's not cool. But you're thinking it's awesome that they're out and doing it because you uh, subtextually think, man, if I was in a wheelchair, I couldn't do it. Yeah, you could because you'd have to. And that's just the way it is. So it's like you you kind of place your own fear on top of somebody else's existence and then behave towards them. And well, how am I supposed to behave? Well, treat them like a human first because a wheelchair isn't, you know, a character trait. It's not a part of who they are. It's a mode of transportation. Your feet are your mode of transportation. Theirs happens to be wheels. That's the only difference between you and them. Like most people don't realize that most men and women in a wheelchair can have sex because sexual organs are on a different, you know, line of uh, nerves. It's the same thing. So, in terms of like acting, it's difficult because actors with disabilities aren't reading for roles that aren't for them specifically. So, if you said doctor, lawyer, executive, Wall Street, You know, hustler, and you said, "Oh no, we don't want to see black people for that because that's not what they do." You would be like, "Are you fucking insane?" So imagine saying that no, a wheelchair user can't be a Wall Street guy. Um, yeah, we had a president who was a wheelchair user. You know, FDR. Okay, well, I mean, you can't have a a wheelchair user be a scientist because I mean, how would they? Yeah, we have that guy, Stephen Hawking. Well, he passed, but. You know, and oh, well, we can't have a doctor who's like, yes, we do. He's a little person. You know, and you start going into it, and you realize, holy shit, I'm just biased. Like, I don't realize it. So the casting process is very difficult. It's very short. It's very tight. And uh, it's a funneling system. There's only a few people who can get in, anyways. So there's a lot of difficulties to it. But the reason why people who are able-bodied shouldn't play disabled roles right now is because disabled people aren't even getting in the room for that. So you got to start there. You know, I mean, we have, in America alone, 57 million Americans have some form of a disability. That makes about 20% of the population. Right now, I think we're at, what, like 4% unemployment? In the disabled community, 80% of everyone's unemployed. So you have a 76% ratio difference, and then on television, only 3% of characters on television have a disability. So you get 20% in the population, but only 3% on television that are characters with disabilities. And the punch in the face is, of that 3% of characters on TV, 95% of those characters are played by able-bodied people. So you're just, just proving it through art on television, which impacts society, that people with disabilities can't do it. So all the employers, all the CEOs go home and watch TV and see that reinforced day in and day out. Oh, yeah, that guy wasn't really disabled. I seen him in another show where he was running. Oh, yeah. Oh, that's a nice story. Yeah, he couldn't do that. Yeah, over and over and over. And then everyone else isn't disabled. In normal roles that they could be, like a professional doctor, lawyer, sports fan, whatever, you know, guy in the background, guy at the bar, It's mm-hmm. Human. Yeah. I mean, just let's not even talk about actors. Let's talk about background. If 20% of the population has a disability, then 20% of your scene background people should be disabled at some capacity. I mean, how many bars have you gone out to and you're hanging out and you see someone in a wheelchair and you're like, oh, cool. And you yeah. don't you don't think about it. But when you see it on TV, it's like, oh, people are going to need to know why that guy's there. And you're like, oh, fuck off. (laughs) So you see what I'm saying? So even from that perspective, it's like, shit. Well, how do we get a wheelchair user onto set? New problem. ADA law. You already should have thought of that. It's illegal. Right. You start getting – you know what I mean? And you just start – it just gets so heavy, all the different nuances.
0: So what can we do to help change the way things currently are?
1: I think – you either have a general public outcry and say, look, just this isn't going to happen until we have 10% actors with disabilities working in 20% of the roles that are being you know, cast out there, uh, then all the able-bodied people can play disabled and you can go back and forth between them. Great. And then until that, there's going to be a public outcry where no one with who's a disabled character can be played by a non-disabled person. That's really all it is until you get enough people able to do it that you can break that back down and say, okay, now we can go back to just doing art. Or instead of a general public outcry, you do something that's the opposite, which is you go right to the top. You tell the showrunners, the creatives, uh, the current executives, the development executives, and the executives uh, at the heads of studios. And you say, you're the only person that can make this change. Call me. Bring me in. Put me in your new show and I'll help you with every other show that you have to make it diverse as it relates to disabilities. Because I know every single actor with a disability, I mean, I don't know every one of them, but (laughs) I know enough of them to where I could say, here's 250 people at the different levels that I could do, and if you put me into that role, all of a sudden, I'm holding the door open and creating the pipeline. I'm literally the conduit in which it flows. It doesn't matter if it's me. It just still has to be someone with a disability. But if... NBC or CBS I mean I've been on like 11 CBS shows and like seven NBC shows I've been on so many shows and it's like if you just said look fine make me an executive of this particular thing not of diversity of literally in charge of casting writing producing this thing and it's a new role and we're just going to get these people in here then I would quit acting for a couple years to do that and I love acting but it's not going to happen without somebody doing it so I'm just proposing me because why not good And if it's somebody else gives you a shit i didn't want the job anyways <laughs> like i like just acting but like this you're
0: like brand on game of thrones
1: right exactly it's like ah oh, crap and it's always the person who doesn't want the power that does the best with power uh-huh. it's always the case because they bring
0: peace to the seven kingdoms
1: exactly
0: now six kingdoms
1: right yeah because they're all like spoiler alert
0: oh shit are you watching right now what are you watching Game of Thrones right now?
1: What do you mean? I don't know what you're saying. You're
0: tricking me. You're too good of an actor. <laughs> Speaking of which, you are up for a potential Emmy nomination for NCIS New Orleans. Yeah. Yes. Okay, I am. tell me about this.
1: Yeah. This uh, is so cool. It's it's I'm really, really cool. cool. It so we did a huge episode. I mean, you know, more than half of the entire episode where my character just goes through it. And it was a really daunting performance because it was all about, like, people with disabilities. Even the title of the show of that particular episode is called In Plain Sight. Because what it is, it's the episode about... How people with disabilities are overlooked and not even paid attention to, so they can hide in plain sight. Mm-hmm. And like the storyline is that a character uses all these people with disabilities who are in different, you know, law enforcement agencies and hides bugs in all of their equipment, knowing that they can bypass all the security screenings because no one really thinks that they're going to be capable of doing anything bad.
0: Oh, no. Yeah,
1: And so my character is also duped and then decides that he's going to be so pissed off about it that instead of just working with the NCIS people, he's also going to do some shit on his side. And he has to make a choice at the end, murder or not. And so it's really, really heavy and powerful. But we're heavily talking about, like, I'm coming back. Next season, like the one of the writers already said, yeah, I'm bringing you back. So I'm meeting with the showrunner and talking about maybe coming back in a larger capacity. But they're like, look, we killed off our last detective from the NOPD, so we want you to be the new one. So I'm like, all right, you know. So I'm probably going to go back for multiple episodes. But we're even talking now about maybe turning this into a spinoff show because of the Emmy.
0: That's amazing. Yeah, that's so amazing. So if you're,
1: you're a Television Academy member, vote, 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 vote. vote. Kurt Yeager, Kurt Jaeger, vote, vote, vote. vote.
0: Do it. (laughs) Kurt Yeager for president. I had a question for you. Uh Uh-oh. I mean, I've had a lot of questions for you, but I have another. (laughs) So do you ever get people who are like, well, if he could do it, then why can't I do it with your story? And if so, does that sentiment annoy you?
1: I get that a lot. It doesn't annoy me at all. And the reason it doesn't annoy me in particular is because a lot of people – need a road map they're not trailblazers I happen to be and the only reason I happen to be is because I'm hyper tenacious like you can bash me in the head and I'm just going to keep coming it doesn't mean it's fun for me I just mm-hmm. keep doing it but a lot of people just don't know how to face those fears so they don't know how to come up with answers to hard questions because they can't really look inside of who they are So they need an example. They need a guide. They need a friend. They need something that's going to show them at least a direction to travel. So it doesn't really bother me. I wish that people thought like me and just did their own thing and could do it. But it also, I think it just comes with the territory, you know? There's a lot of pressure. There's a lot of, like, looking at you going, like, how'd you do it? And you're like, it's really just dumb, dumb, tenacious daily work. I'll film... Content in, in another city or state. Like, I spent five months filming two shows in New York last year. And I was like, Oh, how'd you enjoy New York? And I'm like, What do you mean? <laughs> like, what? Well, you mean you were in New York, you got to do stuff. I'm like, No, I'd film three days on one show and three or four days on another show. That's already seven days a week. So it is a 16 hour a day job when you're fat invested in a show. And you don't get time off. And all you are is in another place that you don't know anybody, that you have no friends to just come over and hang out for 20 minutes because you need a break, and all you're doing is working. It's pretty brutal.
0: So how do you keep yourself mentally healthy and spiritually healthy when you're working that much? Alcohol. Really? No, no. Whiskey.
1: (laughs) Uh, Whiskey. (laughs) Lots and lots of whiskey. Maybe my voice would be like this if I talked all the time.
0: Oh, whiskey man
1: (laughs) i i i still am working on that because i burn out i Mm -hmm. just burn out you know yeah i I, i'm looking for love i'm looking for someone to take some of that load off Mm -hmm. that's part of it um go to counseling you know i have i in the last couple of months i haven't gone lately but i went for two and a half years straight to a really bad really good guy who's total badass and I'm actually trying to go to another counselor soon by my friend's suggestion, just to mix it up a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think you know I, I I do self-evaluation, self-help, and then I have two best friends who know everything about me, and I tell them everything, and I mean everything, the dark stuff, the stuff that happened in, when I was a kid, the stuff that I did bad. When I was a youth, the stuff I've done bad, when I'm like in a relationship and I said certain things, I'm not hiding that, literally screaming it from the rooftops so that either it doesn't happen again or you learn where it came from, or you learn that you're dating someone that was really unhealthy for you. And yeah, that came out of you, but that was the unhealthy inner side of you. And now you know not to date someone like that. Mm-hmm. You know, like knowing your parameters and why your parameters are your parameters I think going through that and evaluating it helps keep me sane but that's also assuming I'm sane right I mean
0: no one's fully sane we're all working on right. it doctor says I'm fine <laughs> <laughs> yeah we're all works in progress and I don't, I think that going back to the end goal thing I think that thinking that this like mess inside of us is ever fully cleaned up mm-hmm is really foolish because the minute you think that more mess comes.
1: I wouldn't say mess because that's like – that really implies like a negative perspective. It's just does your house stay clean on its own? No. You have to clean the counters and then you have to sweep every 10 days. Then you have to vacuum every 15 days. Then you have to – you know, every – two years ugh, gotta call a plumber to rotor this thing out that so if your house has no ego no emotion no nothing and it needs cleaning well, how much more do we need like and that's not it's not like i'm not good enough ugh, i gotta clean up no, you have to clean up to maintain goodness. So you always have to clean. You always have to self-evaluate. You always have to go to a counselor. You always have to talk to your friends about your deep-rooted problems. Because that's the whole point of staying clean, of working cleanliness, of trying to be open and fair and judicious and honest and loving. Maybe I wasn't so loving this month. All right. Why? what happened and not beat yourself up on the self-evaluation not beat yourself up that you have to because the people who don't we know they don't and there's a lot of people who don't they're just miserable but it's really a lack of evaluation Mm -hmm. and then thinking that evaluating is negative cleaning is negative i have to clean there's nothing like you have to make your bed right there's no negative aspect to making your bed.
0: No, okay. no, no. I'm trying to get into the practice. I made that face because it's I haven't stuck to it.
1: Here's the greatest thing I heard from a military guy. Mm. I can't remember which general said it. But he said, the best thing that you can do for yourself every single day, wake up, make your bed. said, two things are going to happen no matter what. One, you're going to start your day off with an accomplishment every day. Boom. Your day's right. If all fucking hell breaks loose all day long and everything falls apart and it's total shit, you come home to a maid bed. Okay. You literally win at the beginning and you win at the end.
0: Okay. I think that's a good thing. So you can frame it in your mind almost like a spiritual practice. It's like a tidying up so that you can enjoy life a little bit more. Yeah. It's setting a foundation. Yeah. Okay. Okay. If I can make it a deeper thing in my mind, I can get there. Yeah,
1: making a bed fucking I, sucks. I meditate
0: every morning, so yeah, I yeah. guess I could probably make my bed.
1: Yeah, and meditation yeah. is like thing, but like making the bed is a physical, tangible accomplishment. Mm-hmm. It just
0: is. Okay, you've convinced me. After so many years of just like haphazardly, sometimes I make it, sometimes I won't. Yeah. My dad is going to be so happy listening to this. He's like, Lauren, you know, I think you should make your bed. Yeah. It's a good practice. I think I think that crick guy is right.
1: <laughs> <laughs> <Make> it-
0: <laughs> he's like okay she finally got it alright well I'll keep you the listener updated on my progress and you as well of course Perfect. so I have a couple final questions Yes. I believe that creativity is deeply linked to the inner child so if little Kurt like let's say five year old Kurt or however you picture him was standing in front of you you're both here in this room and he was looking at you and seeing all of your accomplishments and what you've done and what you've done to take care of him What do you think he would say to you and why?
1: If little Kurt was looking at me, I... Oh, gosh.
0: You can think about it. It's a heavy question.
1: I'm trying to think Mm -hmm. of, like, what he'd say. I think he'd probably say, you know... Actually, I don't know what he'd say. I haven't thought about it. It's an interesting question because... My childhood was shit. So Mm. I'm like, he might go, hey, good job. Wow. I mean, it's all right. All this shit happened to now at five years old. So you made that happen from that? All right. You're all right. But I don't know, like.
0: That's probably correct if that's your first instinct. Yeah. And then what would you say to him and why?
1: Oh, I'd say it's not your fault. Mm. I'd be like, it's okay. Put your head down. Figure it out. It's not your fault.
0: Thank you, Kurt. Of course. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening and to my guest, Kurt Jaeger. For more info on Kurt, check him out at Kurt Jaeger on Instagram and at Kurt Jaeger fan page on Facebook. Jaeger is spelled Y-A-E-G-E-R. Thanks to Liz Full for the show's original music. Follow her at Liz Full. If you like what you heard, go ahead and give the show a rating and review on Apple Podcasts, subscribe, and follow it on Spotify. Your support means we reach more ears and hearts. You can follow the show at Unleash Your Inner Creative at Creative on Twitter and join the Facebook group by searching Unleash Creative Community. Find me at Lauren LaGrasso everywhere. And big announcement, Unleash Your Inner Creative officially has an intern and she is amazing. Her name is Kate Cordova. And she has dreams of someday becoming a radio host and working in a I, I actually met her in a Victoria's Secret and there was just something about her and we started talking and found out she was studying communication and it kind of all just fell into place. So you can follow her at CordovaKate27. Go ahead and welcome her to the community. I'm so excited to have her on board and she's just, she's going to be great and really help the show grow. My wish for you this week is that you show yourself a little bit more love and compassion than you're used to. That little bit can go a long way. I believe in you. And remember, stay tuned for the Creative of the Week. Today's Creative of the Week is Los Angeles-based artist Bridget Moore, a.k.a. Handsome Girl Designs. She mainly focuses on digital illustrations revolving around intersectional feminism, body positivity, and female empowerment. Her design path started as a therapeutic outlet for her own eating disorder, which she struggled with on and off for 15 years. Bridget started drawing as a way to celebrate the beauty of her own body and other women's bodies. I chose her because her work makes me feel better about myself and the world we live in. She's a bright beam of sunshine in the sometimes dark spiral of Instagram, and therefore, I highly recommend you give her a follow at Handsome Girl Designs, and also shop her exclusive collaboration with Art Sugar. A portion of all proceeds are donated to the National Organization for Women. And that's it for today's show. Have a beautiful week. Love ya.